You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends. Well, by now you're pretty much aware that I really love visiting with people that I call change agents that have a passion for what they do. They care deeply about people, conditions that people live in, and they want to do everything possible to make the world a better place. And that's what they live for. And I think my guest today pretty much fits that bill. I'm going to read just a little bit of her bio. It's pretty impressive. She's a 2014 Bush Foundation Fellow, University of Pennsylvania Center of Social Impact Strategy graduate, alumnus of Harvard Kennedy School of Government's Leadership in the 21st Century Program in 2016. She's on the board of the North Dakota Economic Development Foundation, North Dakota Rural Development Council. There's plenty more. But this one really, if I had hair, it would have made my hair stand up in my head. Federal Reserve Board Community Advisory Council. That's pretty impressive bio, and there's plenty more. Maybe most importantly, she is the founder and the executive director of this incredible organization called Strengthen ND. Megan Langley, welcome to Mike Seminary and Friends. It's great to see you. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, I should let everybody know what we are actually on the Economic Development Foundation board together. And we really haven't met <laughs> because of Zoom. So many meetings were, you know, Zoom. And we had a, a recent board meeting. And then I was listening to Megan. And I thought, man, this is really an impressive individual. And I did a little research and I asked her to join me. And so thank you so much for taking time from your busy schedule because you are incredibly busy and you're doing amazing work. So here's here's my first question. And I say this complimentary and if it's in any way insulting, slap me and let me know. (laughs) A young person in North Dakota, many of them want to leave. And you have this incredible background of education and learning that is outside of North Dakota. But you're in North Dakota, and you want to make a big difference. My first question is, why? Oh, gosh. Getting to the root of that is going to is going to come in a little bit of a roundabout way. So I think I am not a whole lot different from a lot of my my peers or folks my age when we were getting prepared to graduate. We were basically at the beginning of the starting line and and everyone, including our parents, were saying, get the hell out of here. And I tried. (laughs) I tried to be 
a Minnesotan. I tried to be a, a, a resident of Montana and North Dakota just kept pulling me back. It's where my roots are. It's, it's who I am. So when you ask <clears throat> why am I here and, and, and why do I want to do good things? It's because Partially, I think the the way I was raised, um, we've got a, a family history of giving back both in formal capacities, you know, serving on serving in elected positions, serving on, you know, as township supervisors. Um, and, you know, I can think about my my mom, how she ran all across the state in the early kind of mid 90s, um, serving as an artist in residence for schools and just how, how selfless she was in that, because certainly she wasn't making a ton of money. Um, I think it's just the, the fabric of, of who I am. And North Dakota is such a wonderful place. It truly is that small town with really big blocks where you get to know your neighbors and, and we're all interconnected and interdependent and, it's just a great place to be. It's it's a great place to live and it's a great place to build a career. And I think other people should should know that. And I also think, you know, it's it's important to take into consideration that there are there are folks that are here because of choice and there are folks that are here because of circumstance. And regardless of the two, we can we can bloom where we're planted. And North Dakota certainly is is a wonderful place to bloom. I love that. We can bloom where we're planted. By the way, thank you uh, for essentially staying. You tried to leave, but essentially you stayed. And, and here's why that's so important. First of all, I encourage uh, all young people, my two young daughters, go. Go and explore. Go and learn. Uh, go and experience uh, life and people that are, are different from those that we uh, grew up with, uh, including our own family, because it's those experiences that kind of round us out um, to be um, uh, more vibrant, if that's, a, if that's a good way of saying it. Not to say that staying, that, that doesn't happen as well, but there's something, you know, it's kind of like the prodigal son story when you go somewhere else, and sorry that if that sounded sexist, but if you're the prodigal daughter and you move away and you come back, you're going to bring back experiences that could very well have a very significant, meaningful, positive impact. And that's exactly what you're doing. And the reason I think that's so important, and I think that's part of what Strength and MD is all about, Maybe one of the, if not the most important thing that we can do as people that have some type of a leadership role, at least in terms of a participatory role, is if we can use our resources uh, in a way that creates an environment that is attractive 
attractive enough to bring back talent that went somewhere else for doing a good thing. If we don't do that, we run the risk of um, getting on the other side of that bell curve of growth, and it's really kind of difficult to go back up. So I, in, in a lot of ways, I, I see that's kind of what you're doing, and correct me if I'm wrong. So what was the genesis? What, what caused you to form Strengthen ND and also use that as an opportunity to, because I was going to say it's this grant making, grant matching opportunity, but it's far more than that. Tell us how that started, why, and exactly what it does. Sure. So how we started, I was working in traditional philanthropy and working in a in a place where we certainly covered a, a more urban space. We we covered Minot, um, but we would always say, yeah, and we cover Minot and um, a hundred mile radius around all of those surrounding communities. And meaning we should be raising money from those communities and we should be giving grants to those communities. And the more and more I worked, the more and more I started to realize golly, we're raising money from outside of Minot, but we're not necessarily giving money back outside of Minot. Why is that? And just trying to, to understand why these communities, these organizations, these projects that are that are wonderful and that are so needed are just not receiving the type of philanthropic support that they that they should, whether it's because they don't know the right people. They're not using the right language. They don't have the, the fancy schmancy brochure that a lot of other organizations might have. So Strength and ND was really born out of this like continued frustration and like hitting a wall of why is this not happening? Why are we not able to live up to, to what it is that we're, we say we're doing? Um, so Strength and ND was founded to mitigate gaps that we were that we were seeing with regard to rural communities and their ability to access charitable funds. And as we got in it, you know, we were we were kind of gaming the system, if you will. I've got a very strong background in grant seeking and grant writing. And it's just kind of something that I can do very quickly, you know, frame out a proposal, put together project components. So we were helping communities to do that, basically taking the, the core of what they already had and putting it in a format and and translating it to what grant makers wanted to see. And while it wasn't a perfect fix or solution to that kind of broken system. It was what we were able to do at that time to funnel more dollars into, into rural and remote communities. And, you know, I, I'm a small town kid. I grew up on a farm and ranch outside of a town of about 30, a town called Warwick. So I grew up seeing firsthand the incredible leadership in, and progressive thinking and innovative thinking that was happening in places like that, that, that often wasn't being recognized. So that was also a driving component of it. And as we got more and more into, into working with communities, it just became very, very clear that a three-pronged strategy was needed. So the first being like, how do we build capacity of rural communities and what does that look like? And how do we do that in a way that is truly equitable and meets people where they're at? Right. So meeting people where they're at in terms of their geography. Um, I know sometimes my board cringes when they look at my travel budget, but we, 
you know, I, I myself am on the road, usually 25, 30,000 miles a year being in community, being with people. So meeting them where they're at geographically, not expecting them to come to us to receive support, meeting them when they're where they're at in terms of their skills, in terms of their attitude, in terms of ideology, right? It, it is not up to us to come in and say, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. It's okay, where are you? And how would you like to move forward? And how do we help you move forward? So building capacity, and that really translated into a formal nonprofit certificate program and this kind of tool, uh, repository of, of technical assistance. And that's really where we cut our teeth. Um, and then the second piece that we, we kept seeing as we got into this was there was a need for a convener or a facilitator in, in rural spaces that understood rural culture and again, would meet people where they're at and support them to be resourceful because they're, there's this great capacity map that's put out by um, Headwaters. I believe it's Headwaters Center for Economics, um, but they talk about the capacity of, of each county and they, they break it down by township just to, to illustrate um, the lack of resources, the lack of people power and the lack of expertise. Um, so, so meeting people where they're at in terms of that capacity and knowing that there's not a ton of capacity for that con convening space. Um, so that's where we started pulling together information around narrative change and advancing regional issues. And then the last piece and probably the, the biggest portfolio that we have is facilitating community solutions. So we kept seeing, you know, communities know how, how they want to solve their problems, but they just need somebody to walk alongside them to, to be that people power that they can't be right now. Um, so that's where our work as the um, uh, Bush Foundation's community-based grant-making partner kind of plays in where our whole portfolio around small production agriculture plays in because we know that that the success of, of small towns is linked to the success of a small family farmer. So we are, we are really North Dakota's statewide organization. The work that we take on, the approaches we, we deploy, it's all informed and led by people who live it every day, who live in rural communities. So um, we, we are North Dakota's responsive, proactive, organization that helps rural communities solve their problems. That's a perfect segue. And thanks for sharing that information, Meg. That's a perfect segue, I believe, to let folks know the, the kind of the breakdown of the percentage of Americans that actually live in rural communities. So we have, I think, somewhere around 350 million people now, somewhere, something like that. And people would be surprised, I think, to learn the current percentage, and it's a pretty big number, of folks that actually live in rural America. So if you'd share that and then break down what that means in terms of North Dakota by county or maybe city, so people have a firm understanding of what that really means. Yeah, I know I'm going to to botch the exact percentage right off the top of my head, but it's it's somewhere around 
20, no, it's got to be more than 20%. I know I included it in my TED talk and I'm guessing that's what you're referring to, but I, I want to say it's about 20% of, of Americans live in rural spaces. It's, it's close to 60 million people um, live in, live in rural spaces. And um, the amount of charitable dollars that flow into those spaces from um, large foundations across the nation is, is pretty disproportionate. Um, it, it's pretty alarming when you actually look at it. And when you think about North Dakota, um, you think about North Dakota and we have eight cities that have population of 5,000 or more and we have 356 cities in total. So you have eight that would have like adequate, what I would call adequate capacity, um, if it's even adequate to move forward and to, to seek out um, charitable grants. And I looked it up really quickly on my phone. 20% uh, of, of folks in America live in rural spaces, but only 7% of the philanthropic support goes to those spaces. Um, 59 million people. It's it's a very unequitable, disproportionate amount of support that is going into rural communities. And it's something that I think is hamstrung development of rural communities. It has um, it is somewhat at the root of some of the contention that you see between um, urban and, and rural spaces. And it just continues to worsen disparities that you see in healthcare, that you see in economic mobility, that you see in all these other, you know, social determinants of health, that you know, things that predict the the outcome, the, the potential outcomes of individuals. And it's it's really alarming, like I said, when you look at just how disproportionate or out of whack it is. And my goal was strengthen ND and and I had done a, a talk at TEDx Fargo about redefining return on investment uh, for rural communities, because so many times when folks are sitting in a boardroom or or they're sitting um, and and assessing federal or state grants, they might be thinking, well, if I give $100,000 to this community of 150 people, is that a good return on my investment? If I want to hit as many people as I can, if I want to impact as many people as I can, is that really a good return on investment? Or what are the economic metrics that will come back from this, et cetera? And we're pushing that you have to look at the entire context of the community and what investments will mean for the community rather than just one specific benchmark. And I would argue that even removing benchmarks altogether with regard to return on investment might be a more risky strategy to, to grant making, but it also also might be a more productive strategy when it comes to grant making. And we are working right now on an, um, on an article that we're putting together and we pulled the, the investments from just regional foundations um, across the Midwest to understand their investments in um, rural communities, specifically in North Dakota. And if you thought the 7% statistic from the national foundations was, was bad, the, the data that we're pulling together is even more uh, disheartening. Um, and our goal with that paper is to try to influence folks who have resources when they're thinking about where they want to make those investments. And when they're thinking about 
you know, what's my return or what's going to be the, the outcome of it. Think about rural communities in a little bit of a different way. So we're trying to influence the field to invest more in rural and remote spaces, knowing that that direct return or or that um, those benchmarks that they want to hit might come differently. They might they might come more slowly, but they're just as worth it. Mm. Th thank you for mentioning your TEDx talk. Um, I tried to attend those. I didn't uh, last year, but I did watch yours. I watched a number of them. And during my morning run, I, I was trying to process how do we help those that have access to the resources look at this differently? Because it's a big deal. I mean, it, if, here we are. We're, we, we sit on the North Dakota Economic Development Foundation board. Yeah. And almost every legislator, when the members of the Commerce Department are pitching, this is what we're going to do. This is what we want to accomplish. They will ask about ROI. They will mm -hmm. ask, why should we do it? Some will even ask, why do we do this at all? Mm -hmm. Why does government get involved in picking winners and losers? That's what they'll say. Well, the reality is the world's changed and that's what that's what you do. And here's one of the things I thought, because I'm one of those guys. I mean, um, my background was the typical return on investment mentality. And I get that because people that are investing their money, they look at what the return would be. So I, I have first had this analogy. Not too long ago, it was really hard for people in marketing to explain the importance of engagements. What 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 do you what do you tell me? What does this engagement thing mean? Tell me how that engagement um, results in dollars in the cash register. And for the longest time, that was difficult. And now it's easy peasy because things have changed and time has gone by, and people understand the importance of using marketing dollars to pull people into some space, to give them information, to hold them there, and eventually that will turn into some form of a return on investment. And I thought of this real simple thought and phrase that has been around forever. So go back to what you said earlier, Megan, there's you know some 60 million people that live in what we call rural America. In the state of North Dakota, that's a big number. You know, if you're outside of the eight to 10 big cities, you're in counties that haven't experienced much growth at all. In fact, maybe they've had a decline because that's that bell curve of growth kind of thing. But something that never changes is home is where the heart is. And there are people that will never, ever, leave what they call home and they will do whatever it takes to not necessarily to change it, not necessarily to make it compete with a Valley city or a Fargo or Bismarck, but to make it this and keep it this special place that has always been home because that's where their heart is. And I'm going to turn it over to you in a second. And 
So folks, by the way, it's strengthenND.com. Go to that website. And what I want you to do, it's right on the front page, is watch the video of the greenhouse at Baldwin. That right there is home is where the heart is. So tell me if I'm wrong, if that makes sense, and then talk a little bit about the video that I just talked about. You're absolutely right. And the something that's pretty wonderful is that we have data that supports that. Um, so we had done a statewide art project that we thought would just be a really feel good um, kind of promotional tool that, that we would do. And we launched it in 2020 and we sent out these postcards that, that um, had a beautiful collage of um, symbols of, of North Dakota. And on the back um, we said in 15 words or less, tell us your view on the importance of rural North Dakota. And we put out 3000 postcards and we got a 20% return, which was insane in terms of, of um, surveying. And we analyzed all of that data around what people were saying you know, it was important to them. And we came up with five themes of five core values, home, community, opportunity, land, legacy. This is what rural North Dakotans say. This is, this is who we are. You know, we, no matter where we go, home will always be home. Um, so you're exactly right. And I sometimes get frustrated when I'm in places, whether it's, you know, um, DC on, on the, um, community advisory council, or sometimes uh, even when I go to conferences or whatnot, and people will say, well, why are you putting in so much effort for rural places when there's not a lot of people that live there? Well, when you look at extraction economy, a, a lot of your of, of your raw materials are coming from rural places. That's where your backbone workers are. They deserve a high quality of life. And back to what I said earlier, everybody should be able to, to bloom where they're planted. There should be opportunity, whether you want to live in Fargo or whether you want to live over by Forfar. It does not matter. You should be able to have a high quality of life no matter where you live. And also thinking about the impacts of long-term long-term out-migration and reduced property tax collections and the impact on communities. If we don't figure this out, we could have significant public health crises in communities. We haven't seen it so much this winter. Thankfully, it has been a more mild winter. But how many times do you see that, you know, X community is on a boil order or Hey, the social media post from Y community saying we are not going to follow the streets um, today because it's helping to insulate the pipes so they don't freeze. Everybody should be able to have access to quality infrastructure, quality drinking water through that infrastructure, no matter where you live. So everybody should care. We're all again, like we're all in interconnected. We're all interdependent. And the video at Baldwin, this is. This is a part of our whole driving philosophy around small production agriculture is that we can work to, to repopulate, to, to revitalize microeconomies, to, to support strategies around rural food insecurity by growing more small farmers. Um, small farmers, meaning micro farmers, those who, who farm on you know, 15, 20 acres. How do you help them? to 
add value to their products? How do you how do you help them to grow to engage in more efficient growing practices, et cetera? Um, and that's that's the inspiration behind our partnership with Stall Farms um, to to purchase the Baldwin Greenhouse and have the strong farm incubator on that space is there are so many people who want to engage in small production farming or farming in general. But they're often priced out of that ability, you know, unless you have a family lineage to farming, the the startup cost to own your own farm and and, and to farm conventionally is around two million dollars. Who can afford that right out of pocket? So this is an on ramp for people who want to get, engage in small production um, agriculture and who want to eventually live in a rural place on their own farmstead and be able to grow their own food maybe sell it and make a profit um, and and have that quality of life that maybe I had when I was a kid and and that I'm still, you know, lucky enough to, to have now living up by Suresh. So that was the, the video you saw was our official ribbon cutting for the Strong Farm Incubator. I wanted to be there. That That's how impressive that video was, by the way. I want to talk a second about some of the things that you just addressed. One could make the case that Megan and Mike, uh, this is 2024, and we should have corporate farming in North Dakota and let major corporations come in. And who cares about the small family farm anymore? It's a thing of the past. It's everything has a life cycle, and let's get over that. Okay, I, I I get it. I absolutely get it. But you're saying that the people there that have lived there, that have weathered all sorts of circumstances from weather to economy. I mean, there's no greater entrepreneur, by the way, than someone that's in agriculture. None. There's none more important. They're irrelevant? Is that what you're saying? No. No, they're not. <laughs> and I always say, if you're interested in food. You're interested in eating. And I'm not just talking farm to table. I mean, I'm just talking generally speaking. Places like North Dakota, and which for now just keep it North Dakota, should be pretty darn important to you. If I, I don't I should have done this research because the numbers kind of escape me nowadays. But North Dakota is like number one in production of 10, 13, whatever it is, really significant crops, whether it's wheat, barley, soybeans, canola, potatoes, sugar beets, I could go on and on and on. And most of that is produced by families. Yep. Most of that in rural North Dakota. And why would we want to mess with that? It's home is where the heart is. Let, let that continue, right? Well, and I, and I think we have to even take a step back and think about the kind of creation of North Dakota's modern economy, where at the height in the 1920s, 30s, you know, we had around 
70, I think it was 77,000 farms, family farms. And that dropped down to about 20, 22,000 in about 2020. Um, so it's a significant drop right there. And as we know, with economic vol- volatility and um, just it, it's been a couple of weird growing seasons, we're at risk of losing more. And there are wonderful efforts that are taking place, like Grand Farm over on the eastern side of the state to um, develop technology so that more food can be produced on a smaller acreage to feed people who are hungry. That is amazing. However, we can leverage technology to to help solve problems, to create you know more resilient crop types, to make sure that no matter what happens across the world, North Dakota will continue continue to be able to serve in that capacity as you know the breadbasket of the world. I think that's amazing. And I also think that there's room for everyone. And I think that highly driven technological farming, high acreage does not um, does not mean that small production operations can't exist or shouldn't exist and vice versa. There's room for all. My argument for folks who would say that the the uh, the small production agriculture or the small family farm, it's it's at the end of its life cycle. I would say, well, why? And should we let it be? And what does that mean then for communities? Because everything has a ripple effect. Everything does. You know, you you look at these small towns like the the town I grew up outside of, um, and y- y- you can look at all across um, the prairie, if if you will, where there were grocery stores and general stores within all of these all of these communities and um your basic services were were typically there and you have people who are driving you know 70 miles round trip to go and grab groceries is that feasible in a north dakota winter is that feasible for an an elderly person who is place bound they cannot move whether it's economic issues, um, social issues, or they just don't want to, to your point, home is where the heart is. I think all of it can exist together. All of it has a space and we have to focus on each segment, the very small farmers, the mid-sized farmers, and the larger corporate technologically driven farmers. And if we have any of those out of whack or out of balance, then the whole thing will be out of out of whack. But each segment deserves support. Each segment is important. Megan, I was born in a fairly small town in North Dakota. But that's not the town that my parents were living in. My dad was a teacher and coach in Sykeston, North Dakota. And back in those days, the reason I said my dad, that's that's why we were there. And back in those days, a lot of moms and wives, they were called homemakers and they were raising kids. So that's where our family lived, Sykeston. I don't, it might've been then a booming metropolis of 300 people, maybe. It's like a hundred people now. That's a very common size town or city in North Dakota, in Minnesota, 
in South Dakota, in Montana, much of that, the breadbasket of the world, and most of that in North Dakota, by the way. So there's this rich tradition of family farms, family businesses in rural America. And yes, I get, I mean, I get that there's this natural life cycle of things and life cycle for people. And when you get on the right side of a bell curve, sometimes that's a difficult challenge. Here's where I'm going with this. The getting the attention of people that make decisions that impact all of us. But here in this case, we're talking about people that live in rural America, in this case, North Dakota, sometimes can be hard. I was in a meeting once with former Senator Heitkamp, Senator Heidi Heitkamp. And this particular meeting was about transportation funding. I think to this day, we still have not changed how we fund federal and local road infrastructure in terms of the gas tax. I don't think we've raised it since like 1993, something like that. Only people in Washington can make decisions like that. You, you don't raise the funding for the infrastructure that you need. You don't raise how you raise the money for that long. That just makes no sense anyway. In the meeting, someone made the comment to Senator Heitkamp, and I'm going to paraphrase it. Well, Senator, why don't you convince your colleagues that live in the big cities on the coasts to stop taking money from the highway fund and using it for transit in those big cities, mass transit? Because that money was never intended for that. It's meant for the road infrastructure. And she said, if you think... I stand a snowball's chance in hell of convincing people that in flyover states that this is important. You don't you don't understand how Washington works. I'm paraphrasing what she said. So Megan, here's your chance. How do we, you know, this is gonna sound a little crude. <laughs> Sometimes getting the attention of people that have big responsibilities that impact all of us, getting their attention about things in rural America, it goes over like a fart in church. They, they ignore it, run, kind of run from it. How do we convince them? How do you convince them? And this isn't just Washington now, but people that should care, they should, they should give a damn, excuse my language, how do we convince them that you can't let this go? This home is where the heart is. How do we convince them that, that that's an important thing? Three things really come to mind. One, representation matters. We were talking about this in, in Rural Development Council about, you know, how, how do we get Rural Development Council members in rooms when... Um, different different bills are being drafted or being discussed to provide that rural perspective. And we as folks living and, and working and those who care about rural spaces have to insert ourselves um, when there isn't an opportunity for that uh, selection process, we, we have to insert ourselves. 
Um, and I that's part of the reason why I applied to be on the Community Advisory Council for the Fed was knowing that people like me, people like my neighbors weren't being represented or the the way in which monetary policy was in, was impacting us wasn't necessarily being represented or or um, illustrated at that at that level. The the second piece is persistence, right? So I know oftentimes I can sound like a broken record, but continuing to be that voice that that um, fly that's buzzing around to say, have you thought about this? Have you thought about rural? How does this impact rural? Are you thinking about it? Because it can be so easy for folks to get disenchanted um, or to, to have individuals living in urban spaces to kind of tune us out, but you have to constantly be there, constantly be trying. And I think the third, probably most important thing that can influence people is to speak in terms of their interest. So continuing to remind people that don't live in rural areas, why they're important, not just to us who who live out here, but to them particularly, whether it's, um, do you want gas in your car Um, or, or do you want food on your table? just really speaking in terms of their interests and speaking in terms of their interests individually, right? Like that's that's been the biggest way I think we've been able to sway folks to give more consideration um, or, or thought to rural places. And I was just a part of a of an input or community conversation that a large foundation was having around its investments in narrative change. And they had this, um, seven page action plan that they were going to do. And they wanted our, our feedback, feedback and input. And it was incredibly geared, everything from the language to the level of commitment to um, the types of outcomes they were looking for. It was incredibly geared toward urban areas, but they're meant to be serving rural places. So just being outright honest and they they asked for feedback and I said, how is this at all relevant to me? How is this at all relevant to people like me? Um, so sometimes being a little bit more blunt can be helpful too. So representation matters, persistence matters, and speaking in terms of their interests can be helpful. The people that you work with and the communities they represent, what what percentage of them, if and it's probably going to be a guesstimate, what percentage of them are involved in some form of agriculture, whether it's being on a family farm or some kind of value add? What percentage of them are involved in that? I would say probably 50% um, are involved in that way. And I would say 100% are in some way directly dependent on it because I think every small town is dependent on it. I asked that question because of this. Sometimes when I listen to politicians from big cities, I, I, I'm, sometimes I'm convinced they don't understand that when they go to a grocery store, how that stuff got there. Sometimes I think 
Well, you know, they just have a bunch of that in the warehouse. I don't know that some of them understand exactly the process. Because I, 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 I kind of listen to this debate sometimes. Um, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, here's where I'm going. If you're interested in food, living, you know, this conversation should be pretty darn important to you. Mm-hmm. Places like rural North Dakota should be pretty darn important to you, and, and you really should kind of pay attention. Mm-hmm. So if 100% of the folks depend on it, 50% are directly involved. How can strengthen ND be, and maybe that's not the mission, but how can it be uh, a stronger advocate and voice for people that ultimately make decisions that impact that part of our our country? How can it be a stronger voice? Part one of the question. Part two is, how can people help strengthen ND be that storyteller? How can we help? So I think in a couple of ways, we have been working particularly in the local food sector since 2016. So about eight or nine years of trying to understand how we can best be supportive without being duplicative. And we have engaged in a significant amount of research. We have developed a microfarm tool calculator um, that will help folks understand the impact of of recruiting and and relocating one small farmer within their community or relocating one new person within their community. What's that economic impact on their community? So we've been building these tools and and we have not had a chance um, because we just got them done. Last week, we we finally kind of tied the bow on it. Um, We are hoping to be able to make that economic justification for investment in efforts to build small family farmers to to really support recruitment and relocation of folks within rural communities. And again, I, I would like to preface this by saying, we believe very strongly in the autonomy or agency of communities. Not every small town wants to grow and that is just fine. If you're a small town and and you want to grow and growing doesn't necessarily look like adding 100 new people, maybe it's adding five new people, or maybe it's just improving what it is that you already have, right? We respect individual agency and we will only help in the way that you would like us to help. Um, So we're talking about um, uh, relocating or or recruiting people to communities where the community wants wants new people. Um, so we're building out those tools to illustrate that that economic return. We're trying to understand how we can quantify or, or strategically communicate the impact on the community fabric, on the social fabric, by bringing in um, new people. So we're working on those advocacy tools. We do have a three-year strategic plan around building out small production agriculture that includes investments in greenhouses and container farms at an energy park over in um, McKenzie County that includes a statewide brand cooperative, that includes a regional processing facility, that includes mobile market distribution, 
in addition to our incubator farm. So we've we've got our baseline strategy and we're just layering more and more, right? Because there's no one silver bullet that's going to solve this thing. We need an all hands on deck approach. And that's very much what we're trying to do. Um, and we are going to start laying out that, that plan to folks beginning in March. And really what we need folks to do to support strength and ND um, more than anything, because we know, you know, economically times, times are tough. If folks would like to contribute to our efforts to build out a regional processing facility at our incubator farm in Baldwin, we would love that. That would be amazing. We've got about $880,000 to raise. Um, and we, we have just started that, that individual capital campaign, um, this year. So, if anybody's ever interested, they can definitely give us a call and we would happily share that, share that information with, with them. So that's what we're doing organizational, organizationally. I think individually, one space that we've been trying to insert ourselves a little bit more is, is the Economic Development Foundation that, that I serve with you on. Um, and I am chairing the Agriculture Subcommittee for Economic Development Foundation this year. So I'm hoping to have a little bit more influence specific to policy recommendations that can better support small production agriculture. So we're trying an all like a, a shotgun approach and we know something eventually will stick and will gain momentum because we've seen it work over time. If we just keep going, if we put our head down and most importantly, keep listening to rural North Dakotans and, and, responding to what it is that that they tell us and and keep those feedback loops going but we're just going to keep we're just going to keep fighting the fight with people so if you want to help you can go to strengthenND.com on the website there's a donation button you can phone I'm going to use share the phone number because it's on the website 701 303. 0840. You can also email Megan at Megan, M-E-G-A-N, at strengthenND.com. When you say container farming, are you talking about the, the containers on the rail system that are used? To, is, do we have one of those operations in North Dakota presently? We do. So we funded it through our Creative Community Solutions grant making program. We funded a freight farm container farm up in Epping, okay. Williston. And it's my understanding that it is going gangbusters and producing more uh, vegetables than they anticipated. And it's wonderful. So that that's a very specific brand. Um, we are looking at greenhouse and container um, farming based off of energy outputs and excess excess heat from um, data mining facilities. Oh. So it'll be a little bit of a different approach, um, but we are actively looking at a feasibility study to understand how the produce from those areas from, from the greenhouse and container farm can be combined with the produce that's coming from our um, strong farm incubator participants and other local foods producers to have a more consistent volume across the year because you know, we only have that small growing season. So how do we bolster or supplement a more consistent supply so we can supply schools, hospitals, nursing homes, 
individual consumers consistently throughout the year. So we've got a multifaceted approach. Um, we're hoping to have some good ideas around what the container farm or the container, the container farming farming unit and greenhouse might look like by the end of the year um, and start to launch that as soon as possible. And, and we're grateful for our partners in industry um, that have offered us some space and, and um, encouragement to do that. Um, that it's, it, it goes back to, you know, kind of what I said before of it's going to take an all hands on deck approach, oil mm-hmm. and gas and agriculture are linked. They're, they're dependent on one another. Um, folks in rural communities are dependent on both. So we got to figure out a way to work together, um, mm-hmm. to have the best results for folks. We have to have a follow-up podcast to talk about what you just meant. I just, I've always been fascinated by uh, containerized uh, agriculture. I just think it's a brilliant idea. I want to go back to something that you said with regards to some people might think this is maybe not in my backyard. That's not what this is all about. Some people don't want growth. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. Not all growth and development is it's good. good. Mm-hmm. It isn't. Um, obviously, some of it's needed. We get that. And mm-hmm. that's a whole other podcast discussion at another time. But often, there are untended consequences for growth and development. And one of them is, it usually raises the cost of everything that's important to you. That because that's kind of the goal of development and growth. It raises um, opportunity, and opportunity has costs associated with it. I get it. So I've always understood why some people don't want growth. I'm going to start closing it with this. You mentioned that your board sometimes is concerned about your travel budget. I'm a guy that has spent a lot of time in my car, on the road. And here are some things that I don't do that much anymore. Here are some things I really miss. I love pulling into small towns, the local cafe. I love going in and listening to the conversations of the people that make that place work. There's nothing better than a homemade caramel roll or some form of a homemade pie. And I'll never forget the first monster cookie I had. I'll never, ever forget it. Because first of all, it was a monster. It was huge. It was warm. It was so good. Yeah, yeah, you can find some of that stuff in bigger cities, but it's not the same. It just isn't the same. The it. Well, here it is. I'm, I'm, my mouth is watering because I'm remembering how wonderful that is. That's how important rural America, rural North Dakota is to me, and I hope it is to other people. How do you want to wrap this up, Megan? What do you, what, if you had a magic wand right now, I'm going to ask you two questions. One, magic wand, what do you want people to know about the most important thing strengthening ND does? And then the second question is, and maybe if they're connected, what do you want folks to know about the importance of life in rural settings? 
Yeah. Those are two very big, very important questions. And I'm going to answer the second one first. Um, What do I want people to know about the importance of living in rural areas? I think it's really important. I was, I was a part of an, of an incubator a couple of years ago that talked about economic mobility, right? Economic, how, how do we predict or support people to advance economically where maybe they were low income and, and these factors come in and they're able to um, have a higher salary or, or build themselves um, kind of up from nothing, kind of that quintessential American dream if you will. There were three components to economic mobility that were cited. One was power, power and representation, meaning that you felt like you had um, the ability to influence decisions in your community. The other was belonging. Like, I feel like I belong in this place. I feel like this place can be part mine. And the third was autonomy. And that always, that the last one, autonomy always struck me as an individual who at times, um, and, and I know with, with my career has flourished when I've been given full autonomy to be who I am and to respond in the way that, that I think is appropriate and to tackle challenges that, that, that based on the data, based on feedback from folks is, is relevant in, in a, in a, in a certain time and in a certain space. That autonomy is not something that a lot of folks experience. And we all have the ability to exercise autonomy in in our own way. And if somebody wants to live in a small town, why can't we support that? If somebody wants to live on a small farm, why can't we support that? And and conversely, if somebody wants to live in a high-rise apartment in a very large city, why can't we support that too? Right, like a part a part of being an American is having choice and being able to exercise your own judgment, being able to exercise your own autonomy. So I think what we're trying to do is to is to make sure that that freedom of choice, in particular for rural North Dakotans or folks who desire to be rural North Dakotans, is there. How do we make sure that that environment still exists? So when somebody says, "Gosh, somebody like me, a college a college kid like me, who said." Minnesota didn't work out for me. Montana didn't work out for me either. I would still have the choice to come back and live on a farm in rural North Dakota. So I think that's that's how we are important in 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 the landscape of outside of outside of North Dakota. Inside of North Dakota, the importance is being there, I think, partially to seed hope to show communities, you know, here's the pathway. You have the agency to do it, should you choose. Um, we are rural North Dakota's advocate. We are rural North Dakota's engine for a lot of things. And, and that's all we desire to be, is to be what rural North Dakota needs us to be. Um, and and I think, you know, how, how I'd like to, to wrap this up um, in terms of strength and ND is that there are so many communities all across the state with individuals without a title who are just busting their butts to do, to do good things in their community. 
And we all can champion those folks. We all can recognize the hard work. And what I would hope folks would take away maybe from from this podcast is that people who live in rural and remote communities by choice or by circumstance, their well-being, their livelihood is important. You need us. Um, we need you. And we can all work together, I think, to 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 make this this state as vibrant as it can possibly be, as resilient as it can possibly be. And anybody who would like to join in that fight with us is is more than welcome to give us a call and we'll figure out a way to get you on board. Megan Langley, founder and executive director of Strength and MD. You're amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You know, one day my mom got a phone call. Who's the barber? Barbara told my mom, your son Michael is here just in his underwear. Mom used to, like a lot of moms did, she had things to do. I was one of three at the time. She would tie my bib overalls to the clothesline post so I could play in the backyard. She could look out the window and watch me while she had other things to take care of. I'd figured out a way to get out of those bibs. And so the bibs in the roll were there. But me and my underwear, I was at the barber. That's small town, North Dakota. That's rural North Dakota. Everybody knew each other, safe as could be. And I just found a way to get out of there. And I'm at the barber shop and got the call. Mom got the call. There's something really special about living in small communities where you know everyone. And sometimes you don't necessarily like everyone. That's kind of life. But you always have each other's back. That's the beauty of living in beautiful, rural North Dakota. It is a special, special place. And Megan, the work that you and your team are doing so important. Thank you for doing what you're doing. You're a difference maker. As I said, you're a change agent in the beginning. Thank you so much for joining me and thank you for your work. Thank you. Thank you so much. I very much appreciate your time. Take good care. Thank you. You too.